Amen, amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Grove. It is good to see you on this kind of dreary, gray morning, but we're glad that you are with us today. Now, if you have been here the last couple of weeks, we've just come out of like a seven-week series on neuroscience and Christian spirituality. And so this morning will feel like a really hard pivot because we were kind of leaving that kind of conversation and starting a brand new conversation all about the Gospel of Mark. This is something that we do every Lent here at the Grove as we kind of walk through one of the four Gospels. And just in the rotation and lineup this year, we arrive at the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, what we're going to do today might feel like kind of a lot of history and a lot of context. And if that's the case, it's on purpose. And if you don't like it, uh, the regular guy will be here next week. So just come back next Sunday and we'll try again. But really the goal is to set a foundation for us for the next several weeks during the season uh, as we walk through this gospel together. And what we'll be doing is looking at snapshots and looking at stories throughout this gospel that help us really kind of journey through Lent together. As Ali has already described, Lent is a season of intentional focus, kind of drawing back to God. It's a way of living out the words that we just sang in that song, Yet Not I, but through Christ in me. And so kind of the tendency that we all have, the natural gravitational pull in our life is to busyness and away from God to focus on things kind of at our feet and around us and in our daily lives. And so Lent introduces disciplines and rhythms and practices that, as Jason said, create space in our life that allow us to kind of draw closer back to God. And so we're going to be looking at snapshots throughout the Gospel of Mark that we think will help us do that. But today we've kind of got to take a step back. If you've ever been to an art gallery, you know the experience that sometimes you can like get really close to the painting or the piece of art that you're looking at and look at some of the really fine details. But to really take in, you know, a piece that's six or seven feet long or wide, you kind of have to step back a little bit to gain the whole perspective that's what we're going to try to do this morning. And so some of it's going to be historical. Some of it's going to be um, kind of something that you might experience in a kind of seminary 101 class. But hopefully this will kind of guide us over the next six weeks through the Gospel of Mark. So as we talk about the Gospel of Mark, first we've got to ask, uh, who wrote this Gospel? And as best we can tell, as best as scholars know, and from kind of early church fathers in writing, uh, the Gospel of Mark is written by Mark. I know that's kind of a, a big leap to make, but what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is Mark is kind of the literary genius behind the Gospel, but it's actually, most likely, the eyewitness account of somebody who was there alongside Jesus. Now, Mark is the earliest of all of the Gospels, and in fact, uh, Matthew and Luke draw much of what they say about the life of Jesus from what Mark said about the life of Jesus. Now, there's kind of an ancient first century bishop called Papias, and he says this about Mark's authorship. Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory though not in an ordered form of the things either said or done by the Lord. And so really what we have in the Gospel of Mark, as best we can tell, is really Peter's memoirs. 
This is kind of Peter who walked alongside Jesus, who was one of the disciples, who was in the inner circle of Jesus. This is his kind of testimony and witness to what Jesus taught and said and did, and Mark compiled it all. Now, we know Mark is an actual historical person who traveled along uh, with Barnabas, his cousin, during some of Paul's kind of writings. Paul references them. What we know is that the early church gathered in Mark's mother's home, and we think, we don't know, but we think based on a couple little clues in scripture that Mark's mother's house is actually the location of the Last Supper. Now, we don't know this, but this is kind of what they tell us. So Mark is a real person who is taking down what he's learning from the Apostle Peter about the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus. Now, every author is writing to a specific group of people. Now, Mark's gospel is for us, but it's not, it's not written to us. And from kind of what we can learn from Mark's gospel, it was likely written to a group of Gentile, primarily Gentile Christians living in and around the city of Rome. Now, we date Mark's gospel somewhere around kind of the latter half of the, you know, the 60s. So 66, 67, 68, 69 AD. This is when we locate Mark's gospel because he's writing to a specific group of people in a specific time and place. And so to really understand why Mark writes the way that he writes and some of the details that he chooses to include versus details that he doesn't choose to include, it's probably helpful to us, or at least I'm going to convince you or try to convince you that it's helpful for us to understand the context in which Mark is writing. Now, let me read a little bit of a description about that time period so that we have a little bit of context of what's going on. So there is a kind of an ancient historian named Tacitus, and he writes about this period of time in which Mark is writing about, okay? So here is the context in kind of the 60s in early Rome. The history, oh, here we go. The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, Horrible, even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. This is just a little bit of the backdrop of the happy times during the 60s in and around Rome. Now, this is the landscape that these early Christians are living in. Now, what we also know about this time period is that in 64 A.D., Something happens in Rome that kind of changes Rome's trajectory. And it is the great fire of Rome. Now here's what we know about the great fire of Rome. Uh, It starts near, if you're familiar with the city of Rome, near Circus Maximus, and it begins to spread. And it burns and it rages for six days. And then as they're trying to put it out, it reignites and burns for another three days. And at the end of all of this devastation about two-thirds of the city of Rome is consumed. Now, nobody can prove this, but best guesses even during that time period was that this fire was started at the order of Emperor Nero. Why? Emperor Nero wanted to kind of reconstruct how the city was laid out. He wanted to do some new master planning. Now, to do that, he 
gave an order to just burn a bunch of the cities so that he could build things where he wanted to build and the way that he wanted to build. Well, you can imagine, if you're a politician and you kind of lay out that decree, it's not real favorable with the people considering two-thirds of the city burned and untold tens of thousands lost their life. So Nero comes up with this idea that he's going to find a different group of people to blame these fires on. And so who does Nero pick to blame the fires on? He blames the Christians. And so what ends up happening because of Nero's scapegoating of the Christians is he issues kind of an, uh, an empire-wide decree that all the Christians should be round up in and around Rome, tortured and executed. Now what they would do is they would go house to house, door to door, grabbing all of the known Christians, interrogating them, trying to find out any of their associates or relatives, grabbing them, and then kind of hauling everybody in to be executed. Estimates somewhere over a million Christians during that time period were killed under Emperor Nero's persecution. This, again, from Tacitus, is describing some of the torture that befell that group of early Christians who Mark was trying to write this gospel to. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. He literally made them human torches. This is all kind of the depraved order of Emperor Nero. Josephus, another early historian, describes it this way. He says, hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not, it seemed, for the public good that these Christians were killed, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. You know you've got it bad when the people who deserved punishment felt bad for you. This is the backdrop and the context of the world in which these early Christians were living in and around Rome and to whom Mark's writing his gospel. This was a group that was persecuted and oppressed and scared. And so you can imagine kind of all of the emotional kind of dynamics that are happening in their lives, all of the relational dynamics, the hesitancy to claim and to name Jesus Christ as Lord because of the consequences of kind of that devotion and that obedience. And so this is kind of the canvas on which Mark begins to paint. And to do so, this is how Mark opens his gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. On the backdrop of unspeakable cruelty, torture, and death, Mark writes, the beginning of of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I would argue that pound for pound, word for word, there is not a richer sentence in all of Scripture. In fact, because I think this is so dense to helping us understand all of Mark's gospel, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at just these few words. Because Mark leaves nothing out 
Even the absence of punctuation at the end of the sentence is intentional. Everything we need to know about Mark's gospel is contained in these words. Now, what Mark is trying to do here is to weave several different threads together and to help this group of early Christians understand exactly what it is that has happened with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and will continue to happen because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's take it bit by bit, shall we? Y'all still with me this morning? Okay, good. I love it. I love it. All right. So first two words, the beginning. Who remembers something else that sounds like this? Opening pages of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is very intentional. Mark is trying to help us understand that similar to the significance and the importance of the creation story is what has happened with Jesus entering the scene. It's of equal weight as God creating the whole world, this story that he's about to tell us about the life of Jesus. They are of equal importance, and there's a connection between the two of them. So you could actually kind of divide Scripture, the whole of Scripture, into three chapters. So Allie and I are going to do the Bible in five weeks. If you just want to do the the Bible in 30 seconds, here we go. Ready? Chapter 1, creation. God creates everything. Chapter 2, decreation. Left to our own devices, we enter a place of sin, corruption, brokenness, and chaos. Chapter 3, this is what Mark is speaking to with these words, the beginning of recreation. What Mark is saying, in no uncertain terms, is that with Jesus, a new creation has begun. All that is old has passed away. Something new is happening. This is why later the Apostle Paul will write about how we are new creations in Christ. Mark is saying the same thing is happening in the world. There is something of monumental proportion happening with the life of Jesus. And do not miss it. Now what else I think is cool about this is what you see happening is Mark is aware of his you know, partially Jewish audience, but primarily Gentile audience, who is aware of all of these dynamics. They're kind of scripturally literate. And so they, when they hear the words at the beginning, they, their mind starts connecting it to all of the stories that they have grown up learning. And so what you see happen is right after this verse, one of the first stories that Mark tells about the life of Jesus is his baptism by John the Baptist. And if you remember that story, Jesus comes out of the water and then floating and landing upon him is a dove. Yeah. Now here's what's interesting. In this early time period in which Mark is writing, there were translations of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. And they were called Targums. We don't have any surviving copies of them, but we have people who wrote about what they said. And so this was different than kind of what we have, which is... Greek translations of Hebrew scriptures or writings in Greek in the New Testament. This was an Aramaic, which was the language that they spoke at the time, a translation of these early Hebrew scriptures, which we will call the Old Testament. In one of the accounts that was available to Mark during this time period, there is a description of that Genesis 1 poem. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what it says is in that 
in that moment when the spirit hovers over the face of the water, it actually uses different language. It says the spirit descends and flutters over the water like a bird. And so Mark is trying to paint with neon paint to help us draw the connection that with Jesus' baptism and Jesus' arrival, new creation is, to, is beginning to happen. Now, that's just all in those first two words, the beginning. Where does he go next? It's the beginning of the good news. Now, in Greek, this is eongelion. This is what we, where we translate good news or gospel. Now, we hear this word, we're familiar with this word, we think this is a religious word. In this first century context, it was anything but a religious word. Good news at that time, eongelion at that time, was reports back of successful victories out in the field. So the Roman Empire, in their conquest of the known world, would defeat some tribe or some group of people, and then word would come back, good news would come back about their military victory out in the field. Later, this good news, this message back of joy and tidings, was not just about military victories, but it came to be about the arrival of a new emperor. So there is something called the Prean inscription. It looks like this. And this is dated to about 9 BC, so very much uh, before Mark was writing and before the life of Jesus. So this would have been known, this would have been around. This is one of many inscriptions. And let me share with you what this inscription says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, the emperor, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. This sounds like language that you read in scripture. This was political language to describe all of the benefits that these emperors would bring to the empire, to those who were faithful to the empire. You would hear this eongelion about what the empire would experience under the reign of this emperor, this person who was going to be the benefactor of all. Another language, another word that they use is to talk about those who were faithful to the empire and the emperor would experience salvation because of the emperor. So, in the beginnings of some of the other Gospels, during kind of the Christmas story that we read, you hear this language. Mark and the other Gospel writers are intentionally co-opting this language to help us hear about good news about a new emperor, a new ruler, a new king who is going to emerge for the benefit of all people, not just those faithful to the Roman Empire. This is what he is saying with the beginning of the good news. And he goes on, of Jesus Christ. So the beginning, new creation of the good news. It's announcing a new king is here. And he goes back to connect it once again for his Jewish audience of Jesus Christ. Now the word Christ, uh, it's not Jesus' last name, nor is his middle initial H. 
for those of you who have wondered. That's right. That's right. Not in Scripture anywhere. But Jesus Christ, Christ is a title, not a last name. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which we would translate as anointed one. Now, Jesus was not the only anointed one, but for us, he is the last and the ultimate anointed one. What you see throughout Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, is that anointing was placed on priests, prophets, and kings. Because in that time period, the anointed one, the one who was anointed with oil, was looked to as God's chosen deliverer for the people of Israel. This was the person who we could count on God working through to redeem and rescue all of Israel. And so if you were a good, faithful Jew, you had great hope and anticipation in the next Messiah, the next anointed one, because finally God was sending somebody to help Israel get back on track and back into its rightful place as the chosen people of God. Now, if you're a faithful Jew in that time period, for hundreds and hundreds of years, your people have been persecuted. Your kind of city, Jerusalem, that you look to as kind of your location for how and where you experience God was controlled by foreign military empires. And so you felt very much disconnected from the promise of God to be the chosen people. And so when Mark writes this, he is trying to pull in this thread for helping people understand all that is contained in the person, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It starts to be a new creation, the beginning of the good news, because there is a new king who has come to benefit all of the world. And he is the chosen one. He is the Messiah, the one that God is working through to restore everything back to God. And then this final piece where he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, once again, similar to the good news, Eongelion, the Son of God was not a title that was unique and specific to Jesus. This comes from the cult of the emperor, if you're aware of that. So when Julius Caesar kind of takes over as emperor of the Roman Empire, it was then the Roman Republic takes over, he anoints himself as God. In his passing, he appoints Augustus, who is, uh, I think, his nephew. He appoints Augustus to kind of be his adopted heir. And so what does Augustus become? He becomes, if, Caesar, if Julius is God, Augustus is now the son of God. And Augustus Caesar, who was emperor during that time period. And so what Mark is saying is a very politically charged message. Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And what I think is so beautiful about the way that Mark weaves all of this together, because again, we kind of read this and we have such familiarity with it that it often becomes boring for us. But this is a huge statement at the time that early Gentile converts to Christianity would have struggled to accept. You take the weight of Jesus is supposed to be the son of God, yet he died on a Roman cross. That is the epitome of powerlessness. The son of God, Caesar, is the most powerful person in the known world. 
And yet we're supposed to believe that this man who was crucified and discarded is the son of God. And so to help early Gentile Christians understand exactly this to be the case, at the end of Mark's gospel, during the crucifixion narrative, you have a Roman centurion who is a kind of a Roman soldier. His ultimate authority is Caesar. He observes Christ's suffering and death. And then one of the final statements made about Jesus in Mark's gospel comes out of the mouth of this Roman centurion, and he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. Just in case you were going to miss it, after all of this, his whole life, his teaching, his ministry, pay attention to his crucifixion and death because this is how we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark is trying to say all of this and to do all of this in this opening line. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why is this important? Because if you're an early Christian receiving this account of Jesus' life, trying to unpack the meaning of this man that you claim to follow who lived and taught and did miracles but then was killed and there are claims that he was resurrected from the dead, why isn't the world better than it is? If you're a Christian in Rome, you're worried for your life. Why does the world look the way that it is? Why is Caesar still in control? Why, did, why aren't things any different? I think by the grace of God, we have the opportunity to worship in safety and security. That is not true for Christians all around the world. Despite the untold numbers of persecution during this time period in which Mark writes, today there are more persecuted Christians than ever before, worldwide. For us, we have the freedom to worship without fear. And so for us, the, the connection to Mark's point in his gospel to encourage persecuted Christians to hang on, to hold on, and to trust the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, might be a bit beyond our grasp. But what I do think we can take away from this opening statement and the way that Mark constructs his gospel is the way that Mark ends his gospel. What I mean by that is if you turn to chapter 16, the original ending to the gospel of Mark ends with the women coming to the tomb, seeing that Jesus' body isn't there, and they run away in fear and terror. That's how Mark's gospel originally ends. And then what we think has happened is that kind of early writers recognize that this kind of seemed like a problematic ending, and so kind of borrowing from some of the letters that were circulating in that time period, they constructed kind of the final um, 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark. And so we kind of have this addendum ending. So all this to say, Mark is very intentional with how he starts his Gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think he's intentional with how he ends his Gospel. Because really you could argue there's no ending. Why? Because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's always a new beginning. 
There's always a new opportunity. No matter our level of persecution, no matter our own personal sin or moral failures or relationship conflict, there is always an opportunity to come back to the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And ultimately for us, friends, this is what Lent is about. It's about knowing that we can always return and have a new beginning in Christ. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, new beginnings are always possible. And that's what we hope will happen for us as a people over the next several weeks, is that we will trust that we can begin again. We can begin anew, and we can begin differently as we return back to Christ over and over and over. And there are Lenten disciplines that are designed to help us do that. Prayer, fasting, denial of self, almsgiving, service to others. These are ancient Christian practices that encourage us to return again, to have a new beginning. Now, one of the ways that we want to add to those practices is we have created um, an opportunity for us to read along to the Gospel of Mark together. Now, if that sounds daunting to you, just know that this gospel is the shortest of, the, of all of the gospels by a considerable margin. And if you were diligent, you could actually read the whole gospel in about 40 minutes. So we're going to divide 40 minutes worth of reading up over six weeks. So this is an all skate. Nobody's got an excuse. Nobody's got an excuse today. As you leave, we have a couple of things that we're going to offer you. We have these scripture journals. These are just the gospel of Mark that have blank pages in them or line pages in them so that you can read, take notes, write along. Grab one of these if you're actually going to use it. If you're going to make notes in the margins, if you're going to write in there and you're going to journal your thoughts, we hope that you'll use it that way. Some of you are just like, you like free stuff and so you grab it and then we run out for the people who want to use it. So if you're going to write in this, we would love for you to take one. For everybody though, we have kind of this overview of the Gospel of Mark. It tells you a little bit about the Gospel uh, far more succinctly than me this morning. And then we have this bookmark with 30 readings. So you can divide it up the way, however way you want, the way that we have intended for you to use this, not the way you have to use it, but the way that we have intended for you to use this is there are six weeks in Lent, Monday through Friday, five readings, five times six is 30, 30 readings. Really short you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 verses per reading. But this is what we want you to do. Because part of returning and beginning again with Christ is learning who Christ is and learning how to receive his invitation to follow him. This is what we will see Jesus come in the following weeks. He will show up and he will do. He will offer an invitation to follow him. It will require something of us, though. And we'll talk about that more in future weeks. But we hope that you will all grab these cards and these bookmarks and if you so choose one of these scripture journals because just imagine if we as a church and we as a people begin to read this gospel together. We begin to apply its teachings to our lives. We begin to pray as we read that God show us who Christ is and how we can better follow him. My guess is at the end of the six weeks, we would all be living into a brand new beginning, living into the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's our hope and prayer for us as a people. Let me pray for our time together this morning. Gracious Lord, 
Thank you for the chance to begin anew with you, no matter our past, no matter the state of our present. God, there are always new beginnings through you. So God, help us to draw closer to you this season. Let us use this gospel. Let us use these weeks as a time of preparation and of focus and of transformation so that we can live lives that more fully model your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.